I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Seriously at Christmas Time. A very special episode of Seriously. It is a completely special episode. This is for you to lie very still, eat probably an entire like bit of cheese. We um, love cheese. <laughs> and enjoy. It is. Drum roll. The Love Actually special. <laughs> then we've gathered all our colleagues. Um, we actually went around to Caroline's house and had like nice wine left over from Stephen's wedding and ate nice food that Caroline had made and watched Love Actually all together. And we come back to you refreshed with new thoughts on Love Actually. It's on TV in Britain anyway, pretty much every Christmas. I know from the internet that most people in America watch it every Christmas as well. Which is funny actually, because didn't we find out just the other day that when Richard Curtis was first thinking of doing like an anthology film romantic comedy type thing, he was intending it for Valentine's Day. It wasn't going to be Christmassy at all. But anyway, it's become a Christmas staple. And I feel like reactions to it kind of goes in waves. You know, you get the like, why Love Actually is actually a great film pieces. And then you get the, here are all the mass problems with of actually lists as well so we wanted to take a proper look at it and kind of examine it from both sides now as Joni Mitchell never ever said <laughs> so we've gathered Stephen the staggers editor of the New Statesman John who edits City Metric Barbara who's a technology writer for the New Statesman and Anoush the New Statesman's deputy web editor and yeah we're all gonna chat about it for you I mean we think we've been pretty comprehensive about this film but I'm sure we haven't. So if, Absolutely, I'm sure we haven't. <laughs> yeah, we definitely haven't. So, so if you have thoughts, interpretations, outrages you want to share with us, as ever, you can do that on Twitter, Facebook, or you can email us, seriouslypod at gmail.com. All of the contact details are as ever on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Christmas is all around me, and so the feeling grows. So we're going to kick off with me talking to John and Barbara about the class and financial elements of Love Actually. AKA why none of us can afford a nice flat like in the Richard Curtis vision of London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Love Actually, as a film, it sits in a very specific moment. It's very of its time, even though it has had this long afterlife where it's on telly every Christmas, because it was... 2002, 2003, pre-recession in Britain, 
And when you rewatch it, the thing that really, really stands out is that everyone in this film has loads of money and doesn't seem to realise that not everyone lives like they do. Yeah, exactly. And they all seem to have very big houses, which they walk out of onto the South Bank <laughs> repeatedly. They they worry about jobs, but only in a very kind of non-committal way. Kind of, when will I write my next best-selling novel now that my wife has run off with my brother? Is Colin Firth's kind of enduring concern. And the one set of people who we are explicitly told are from a dodgy place, i.e. Martine McCutcheon's family live in the dodgy end of Wandsworth. They still still live in a really nice terraced house that I'm pretty sure now costs at least £600,000. E- even in 2003, I don't think Wandsworth really had a dodgy end. No. If it did, it certainly didn't look like I that. I really don't so. think it did. And it's a little bit upsetting that the way that their relative poverty is expressed is that there's just lots of people in her family. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even so, when Colin travels to America, he encounters these women who, in a bar who tell him that they're really poor but they're basically only poor so that they can be sexy so they say we only have one bed we can't afford pajamas we'll have to sleep naked and then there's a shot of them all running up to this like very large like clapboard like standalone house which is huge and really nice and it's covered in christmas lights so the fact that poverty is like a joke is yeah, quite telling. it is it's a punchline isn't it also that's kind of really creepy the idea that, yeah that's like, for another segment john <laughs> sorry sorry i'm just I, i'm gonna keep getting derailed onto the creepiness but like there is no level of poverty at which attractive bucks and young women start thinking they can't afford pajamas and it becomes yeah. a whole sort well, of well they're also thinly veiled victoria's secret angels so i mean there's all kinds of problems there. well they should really pay those guys more because you know they <laughs> <laughs> they work hard, those, those lingerie models. So yeah. Aesthetically, it's very... The London of Love Actually is very, like, middle class and early noughties, right? Lots of, like, twinkly fairy lights on your sort of white emulsified painted woodwork. Yeah, and kind of just kind of really nice items. So, like, the homes are kind of always filled with stuff and kind of Kira Knightley when she goes around to kind of visit the man who's secretly in love with her, he has this kind of lovely studio. So he's obviously an artist, but he also lives in central London, has kind of this like tastefully messy, huge flat. Yeah, property ownership is, oh, it's kind of, it's so stressful when you're watching it from the perspective of London at the end of 2015, where John is the only person who you will hear on this podcast who owns a house or a flat, rather. Uh, The rest of us sort of exist in a space where I think we pretty much know we will never own property in London because that's how the economy is now. And also the sound of the phrase dodgy end of one's worth, you just saying, oh, awesome, like, can I move there? (laughs) Does that mean it'll be cheap? Only to find it is a myth. I do literally live in the dodgy end of Islington, by the way. I have a theory about this film that there is a parallel between the career of Richard Curtis and, and that of the Labour Party. Do tell. Okay, so in the early 1980s, you've got Curtis is working on not the nine o'clock news and it's you know it's it's not like you know manning the barricades but it's a little bit radical yeah it's, it's for those who haven't seen it it's like a, a slightly edgy sketch show out of that kind of alternative comic movement in the 80s right yeah it was for example it was the first sketch show to kind of make jokes about police being racist so that's where Richard Curtis kind of comes into the sort of British cultural eye for the first time then his big project for the rest of the 80s is Blackadder which is you know again it's not it's not exactly a communist sitcom, but it's certainly slightly anarchic. It's anti-authoritarian, like kind of the, the, the sort of overriding theme throughout Blackadder is that we are ruled by idiots. And it's upper class twits who cause all the problems. And it's actually sort of clever people do, below that doing all the work. 
By the time you get to the 90s, though, he's kind of, his work has shifted, and his big 90s sitcom is The Vicar of Dibley. <laughs> which which is kind of, most middle class thing. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of, it's sort of very liberal in that, you know, it's, it's a female vicar, and, you know, she makes jokes about sex and so on, and she kind of goes into this kind of country village, and everyone gets, like, you make that kind of huffing noise that, that rural landowners do. But it's still incredibly cosy, it's sort of like the Archers or mm. something. And love actually is sort of set in that world where, you know, it's it's a vision of liberalism and, you know, it's a sort of socially left-wing thing where everyone's kind of, you know, a little bit multicultural and a little bit liberal, but nobody actually has any real problems. It's a vision of, of, of what it means to be on the British left that's completely divorced from economics. Yeah, and I mean, so so some of the main characters work in a charity, but equally are, by all accounts, very well off. So one lives by herself in a really nice kind of maisonette mm. flat, and the other is Alan Rickman, who's seen as this kind of patriarch who provides for his family and buys someone a £300 necklace, which probably is not what we associate with working in a charity now yeah, or ever. especially not, because it's a it's a development charity, isn't it? Like yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a charity focused on charity, like, yeah. aid in an, an unspecified area of Africa. It doesn't get any more pinned down than that but yeah the idea is that they're supposed to be the kind of lefty third sector types but who inexplicably can still afford like lovely properties and as you say mm. incredibly expensive gifts for their not wives yeah. <laughs> but this was the tone of the of most of the british left in 2002 so what you're saying is love it's actually blair's is britain. the product of blair's britain right literally while i've been sitting here i've rethought this year and i think actually it's probably more accurate to say that they're both the product of baby boomers mm. who come out of good universities get their careers sorted out pretty quickly and then never really need to worry about money again and so while they still have social consciences and so on they're also so completely divorced from the fact that not everyone is as lucky as they are that stuff like real poverty and you know lack of uh, the difficulty of getting onto the housing ladder or whatever it is completely gets missed but equally like the entire film's premise rests on that because these are people who are so obsessed with their own emotional lives because they kind of have nothing else to think about so i mean colin fristle is able to give up his life rent out his flat he like says offhandedly to his friend and then move to america literally because he wants to find a girlfriend mm. and i think that like this social context is one which allows that to be what people are kind of worried about and obsessed with and kind of yeah and because all the yeah. big problems of their lives are sorted yeah right. with the with some exceptions so obviously mm. people who have children still have to look after their children and everybody else and laura linney has to look after her brother but kind of with those familial exceptions there's little else they have to worry about in their sort of social sphere. It's all um, people who climb to the top of Maslow's hierarchy <clears throat> needs, isn't it? They kind of don't need to worry about food or shelter. Yes. They can just worry about who, who they're going to shag, basically. Which is kind of disappointing, both from a diversity point of view, but also, I think, this kind of anthology style of film, what you surely want is contrast. That's what mm. makes it work. So wouldn't it have been so much better if at least one of the families focused on lived on a South London estate, even if you are so obsessed with it keeping it geographically linked so that they can all be in each other's lives in some sense. Why couldn't like one of the other families that go to the same school be... They wouldn't yeah. go to the same school, is the problem. Because you the school has a theatre. Because, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You prime minister's they, they go to the other school there. down the road. You could yeah. pretend that they went to a, like, a really good South London state school. But the, I, I think the, the problem is these other lives are sort of invisible to the people making the film. Yeah, you're I don't, right. It's, it's, it's not that they're kind of consciously leaving out entire swathes of society. It's just that they've, they've never thought about these this, people. This is society as far as they're concerned, right? Yeah. yeah. But equally, the whole film is kind of framed 
from the point of view of the prime minister, right? So he, the film starts with his voiceover. It kind of his plot is kind of obviously goes throughout, and he is connected to lots of the characters besides from the fact that he is the prime minister. And so again, it's kind of it's almost like his vision of of a Britain mm-hmm. where people and the fact that the prime minister is doing a speech about love in the first place, and that again he like overrides foreign policy for <laughs> someone he fancies is just this. It kind of just shows this idea that that's nothing to worry about because you're, this is what we're concerned with. You're but. right, actually. I hadn't really clocked the fact that I, I obviously I noticed that the voiceover at the beginning is Hugh Grant, but I hadn't really clocked that it's kind of Hugh Grant in the character of the prime minister before but you're right it makes total sense also the fact so when some of the people you're hearing appearing on this podcast came around to my house for a re-watching love actually party before we did this and we watched all of the deleted scenes as well and in one of the sort of pre-scene interviews Richard Curtis says that the film was like three and a half hours in its first edit and so in order to get it down to a like a cinematic releasable version they trimmed at least one scene from each storyline but I don't think they trimmed anything from the Prime Minister storyline there weren't any deleted scenes of him were there so he is the most important character and it has the kind of the most plot points to it there's the kind of thing with America there's the thing with asking her to be moved away from his office so it, it does seem like that is a kind of primary plot and it does i suppose make sense both in a kind of status class way and also in a kind of british culture way that if you've got hugh grant to be in your romantic comedy you don't cut he's him. always the lead <laughs> he's yeah. always the lead you don't cut <laughs> his screen time yeah. and also because if you are framing your whole, whole film however implicitly from the point of view of the highest status man you don't minimize him on screen do you do we think that hugh grant is playing the sort of british liberal lefty fantasy of no. who tony blair was at that point but it's not though because there's a there's a portrait of Margaret Thatcher in his office. I thought that until we rewatched it. There's a bit where he kind of, I think the first time after Martin McCutcheon brings him some biscuits and he go, and then she leaves and he goes, oh, that's that's just incredibly inconvenient that she's so bloody attractive. He looks up at a portrait of Thatcher on the wall and goes, did you have this problem? Of course you did, you you dirty girl or something like that. Oh, horrible. You seem so very confident David that Tony Cameron. Blair didn't flirt with a portrait of Margaret Thatcher in his office, and I'm less confident okay, in that Okay, fair enough. But I, I think that... Hugh Grant is a proto David Cameron. Obviously, David Cameron didn't really exist yet at that point, but I think he's the the like he predicted him basically this kind of cuddly centre right kind of status quo guy. Not not but, ideological, driven entirely by yeah. what's pragmatic. But, no, I I, I I stand yeah. by my theory. He's Pigs. there is an element of Tony Blair in there, in that he's kind of youngish, good lookingish, clearly quite liberal. But the one way in which he massively diverges from Tony Blair is that he tells the Americans to go stuff themselves, which in 2002, 2003 was a very, very live issue. That's when Blair starts diverging from the British left. So it's like Tony Blair wish fulfilment. Yeah, it's it's what they wanted Tony Blair to be. The fact we can't quite tell is also a product of the fact that at that time it was also narrow in a way that like Mm. Tony Blair had dragged us slightly to the right such that you could have just those kind of nothingy prime ministers, whereas you can't imagine having a nothingy Labour leader now post... Yeah, and it it does make sense as well that Hugh Grant's prime minister is from a left-wing party or a right-wing party it's from a political period where you occupied the center you Mm. you deployed ruthless pragmatism but also there would be very little sadly social class difference between whether he's a labor or conservative prime minister he would still be privately educated he'd still be white he'd still be posh he'd still have a posh sister in emma thompson you know what i mean problems have been sold you didn't need ideology because everyone already had their nice house in wandsworth and they just worried about their boyfriend and he basically had to be relatable that's the Mm. thing about him as the prime minister Right, that that's why people then really like him because 
because he's relatable. Yeah, and I suppose it's because, you know, our prime ministers are these days are always married and have children and, again, tend to have private lives that are kind of, quote, already sorted. There's not, you know, it was it was such a major deal that Tony and Cherie Blair, like, had a child while in office. This, this was, you know, unheard of, at least in the 20th century, that... The fact that he's a relatable prime minister and then we also get to see a cute story about his private life. Yeah, I just had one more thing on framing, actually. I reread the Lindy West Jezebel thing, which is like very, very funny, if I don't agree with all of it. But the, the thing she opens with is like, this is meant to be such a relatable film about everyone, about everyone's love, and it opens in an airport. And like, there is nothing more kind of economically like funny than that, that this, this assumption that we've all done that, obviously, we've all gone to meet, we've driven in our cars to Heathrow to meet our loved one who's come on an expensive flight from somewhere else. And that that's kind of just this baseline that yeah. you're all meant to kind of see. Yes, that's a good point, with. actually. Yeah. After you went home, I, tried to watch like the first 10 minutes of the film with the audio commentary on it just to see what it was like and so it annoyed me so much I had to turn it off after the airport bit but that they do make that I think it's Richard Curtis and I can't remember who else is on the audio commentary but he makes explicit that he you know he talks about how how fun it was to film those bits and how it's like oh yeah you just see like all of life in the departure (laughs) and the rivals bit he throwed it's like "Mm, all of Rich people's lives. Who travel at Christmas. Yeah, yeah who travel at Christmas. I think, in conclusion, love actually for a very specific segment of the population that has no clue that the rest exists. Um, was probably born between 1940 and 1975. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say that you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made
So following on from Caroline's chat with John and Barbara about money and how everyone has it in Love Actually, we're going to talk a little bit about how everyone's kind of quite similar in this film and also about sort of who's allowed to fall in love in Love Actually. So John's back writer of cities and we've also got Stephen writer of politicsy things although this is an anthology film and you kind of expect there to be lots of different relationships on offer one of the perhaps the most glaring omissions in this is that all the romantic relationships in it are straight do we think that's true i mean there's some sort of blurring of the boundaries in bill nye's plotline i don't know if either of you think that is a a canon gay romance it's not portrayed as sexual in any way, from what I recall, isn't it? They kind of play it as, you're my oldest mate you are, let's get drunk and watch naked women kind of things. Well, I think there's, it's maybe slightly more open-ended than that, because he does say, like, oh, you you know, one party with Elton John and you've turned into, like, a basically a raving homosexual. And then he says, no, I'm being serious. So he doesn't say, like, no, don't be ridiculous, but he also doesn't say, yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Stephen, do you think... I mean, my instinct is that it's not. The point of the film, in a way, or at least I think the the authorial intent, is that it showcases different types of love, and they're there as kind of friendship. So do we think same-sex love is always friendship, not sexual love in this film? There's the the deleted scene. There was originally, as filmed, a scary head teacher of one of Emma Thompson's children who kind of was this kind of stereotypical head teacher who we're all a bit scared of, and then we see her going home to her partner who's dying of its assumed cancer because she's lost her hair and then that ended up on the cutting room floor you can argue of course and this reveals that in terms of richard curtis's hierarchies of love and actually if in terms of the bulk of the deleted scenes they come from three stories in particular emma thompson's which is really about parental love and giving things up for your family depending on how you interpret the final scene i suppose if you think emma thompson and alan rickman have split up I'm not really sure what it's about, if they have, but obviously I know they're a different interpretation than that, but soldiering on to give her children what she sees as the best upbringing they can have. And then you have Liam Neeson and his son's plotline, which is obviously about love after death and about him building a relationship with the little boy. And is also, of course, about sort of everyone's first love and is in some way, I think, probably the most natural and well-written of the couple's. Oh, I love this girl. Have you ever talked to her? No, of course not, because 11 year olds never talk to people when they think they're in love with. Recipe for a successful marriage, I think. Um, well, I, I, I bow to your years of experience. Um, I'm going to um, in so much trouble if she listens to this. And, and then, of course, the plotline, which is excised in its entirety, is the lesbian couple, which I think is a real shame, because part of love and marriage is you are accepting the idea that one of you will have to watch the other one die. That is a choice you have, you've made at that point, and kind of the movie, I think, feels incomplete without it. And they could easily have cut some bits of thinking Bobby from, from my family goes to America in search of... Uh, of uh, Colin's got a big knob, the plot yeah. line. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And I think it's funny that that you're right. It's not only the only homosexual relationship. It's also the only uninterrupted older person's relationship. So obviously you could argue that, you know, the middle aged relationships between like Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson are older ones, but they're ones in which people like either already have died or which they might break up. There's no example of like a happy state in your older years that might be together. I'm still thinking about the question of whether Bill Nye and his manager are in romantic love of each other. And I'm I'm 
rethinking my position on this slightly because I remembered firstly Richard Curtis also wrote Four Weddings and the Funeral which has the world's least openly gay openly gay couple in it yeah uh, where it's kind of a plot twist that these two characters have been in a relationship all the along the entire time yeah <laughs> But also just because of the... I, I think it's easy to forget how far we've come socially in this country in the last 10 years. And now, like, it's gay people are completely normalised in TV and film. 2003, that, it was, we were kind of a fair way through that process. But I suppose it's not beyond the realm of possibility back then that people were still a little bit anxious of making explicit openly gay relationships in a sort of major Christmas movie. And maybe they were just being really coy about it. Yeah, maybe. Know. And it does feel like such a glaring omission now. But I don't think at the time I felt that. It's only three or four years after Queer as Folk, which is really, you know, when gay people go completely mainstream on British television. And like suddenly this is a whole sort of realm of existence that we all accept we've just been ignoring so maybe you think about how long it takes to get a film made maybe they were just sort of still nervous about it i don't know i think i prefer the plot line maybe if they end up together at the end properly sexually. but at the end he does bring back that blonde woman when he meets him at the end yeah that's true oh yeah that's yeah. a major and i think so four weddings is from 1991 Sorry, I hate to be that guy, but it was 1994, Stephen. I think you're But you know, so it was a it was a very different <laughs> different world. And I think one of the things which I really like about four weddings is the funeral scene. Which, so uh, my my mother's a, a priest, and that is sadly an all too familiar trope of burying one half of a homosexual couple, particularly if the parents are socially conservative. So the priest will know that the special friend is a husband or a partner. The friends will know it's a mm. husband or a partner. But they're Not in the order to appease, yeah, like the, yeah, the, the reading will be introduced as and now so-and-so's close friend. And, and actually the gay relationship in Four Weddings is so well done and I think so accurate to that class and time that I think the very fact that there is an open question about it in, in Love Actually suggests to me that the answer is no, mm. they are just intended to be straight. There's that deleted scene where Emma Thompson speaks in front of the school and says, you know, we all send our condolences to Anne Reed's character, the, the headmistress. And that would have been a nice, you know, counter to that part in Four Weddings. Eleanor Margolis has written an excellent piece on that deleted scene between Anne Reed and Francis Delator's characters, which you should all read and we'll put in the show notes. So do we think there are other ways in which we're kind of getting the same kinds of relationships on screen in Love Actually? I think it's certainly the same kind of people in that it's the sort of people that Richard Curtis and his circle would contain. It's all people who are reasonably affluent, reasonably well-educated, reasonably white as well. It's mostly white, isn't it? We do have two relationships between white and black people. Kira Knightley and her husband. And And we have the school kids. Oh yeah, of course, I've forgotten the school children. I mean, the, the thing is, is I mean, like, one of my pet peeves to generate the perhaps the first hostile emails of the <laughs> one of my pet peeves in cultural criticism is journalists with majority or exclusively white social circles writing articles going oh there aren't any black people in this as if this is some kind of searing cultural commentary of which kind of girls is the the other example i i love girls and for the benefit of uh, of our listeners i am black um but <laughs> Spoiler alert, most social groups about which girl... Like, it actually would be hugely unrealistic for there to be a black character 
in, in, in girls. You know, spoiler alert, most, 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 uh, most black people or, or people of colour, if that's your bag, or, or visible minorities is what I prefer, cannot afford to take unpaid internships in Brooklyn in the hope that their dream job will, co will come along. That, that is simply only a reality for white people. And it's a very good show, but it's a show about a, a reality for white people. Ditto um, Four Weddings, I think, is, I'm astonished that there are that many ethnic minorities. I mean, I recently got married to a white person. Like, spoiler alert, most people's groups are not that diverse. Yeah, I guess it's just one of my hobby horses. Because it's so cheap and easy to do, like, it's like, you have journalists who wouldn't be able to vox pop a council estate or a, a hostile block, I'm aware the majority of listeners to this podcast are from the States, you know, without fainting, but they can sit there and, like, churn out some nonsense about how there should be some more black faces in love, actually. <laughs> well, I think maybe well, it all comes... Old me <laughs> <laughs> uh, so do we think maybe it all comes back to the fact that Richard Curtis has like taken a very specific strata of society to look at and maybe actually like, considering that that it's not so bad racially it's just part of what he's decided uh, the people that he wants to look at falling in love I think it's, it all comes back to class again it's kind of it, it's you know upper middle class media types most of whom probably have <laughs> Oxbridge degrees not that we know any of those yeah <laughs> um, and so it's you know it possibly is kind of an accurate reflection. I guess you get into the argument as to whether representation is, is worth having regardless. But again, we're talking about Britain in 2003 rather than, you know, the US in 2015. So I think in conclusion, I would have liked to see more actual gays in love, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, we think it's probably all part of Richard Curtis's weird, like, mirror-reflecty problems that he has created with this film. I am dreaming Dreaming of a white White Christmas Yo just like the one that I used to know. Now, Stephen, Anoush and I are going to talk about what I think is the most important and most problematic element of this film, which is how incredibly creepy quite a lot of it is. I'm thinking particularly of the fact that when you analyse across all the romantic storylines, we've already spoken about how they're almost all man-woman pairings all of them that ended up in the film are quite often the man is older like 10 15 20 years older and occupies a position of authority over the woman for instance the alan rickman um i don't know the actress's name but you know the the woman who plays his secretary who's kind of opening her legs for him and then also the hugh grant prime minister with his martin mccutcheon tea lady you know there are quite a lot of this dynamic. Anoush, did this bother you when you first watched the film? Can you remember? When I first watched it, I know that I definitely didn't notice that and, and just felt very happy when I came out of the cinema and I went to see it with my mum around Christmas and I thought it was great. Um, and then every Christmas I've watched it since, I've realised that this film is just basically about creepy office romances, essentially, mm. because there's also the Colin Firth and his cleaner relationship, which is also, I mean, it's his office in the south of France and it's his cleaning girl who he only ends up fancying because she takes her clothes off and jumps into the lake to save yeah. his manuscript. So that bit, I, something I hadn't noticed until we rewatched it, which is that when she jumps in to, the, uh, to save his manuscript in the lake, the style of filming suddenly goes completely different. So, and you get this like slow pan mm. down her body and like the slow motion removal of her top and stuff. And it's suddenly weirdly porny for like 10 seconds and then she jumps in the water. 
Mm. Yeah, and then of course you have Hugh Grant sort of leching on one of his new <laughs> members and... of staff in 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 number ten, and and the Alan Rickman storyline, which is quite shallow as well. So it's all a bit. I think Hugh Grant. I, I, I'm no lawyer, but I think that Martin McCutcheon would have grounds for a tribunal if she wanted it. The fact that he had her, he didn't investigate the incident with the president yeah. at all. He didn't ask her, and he just had her like demoted to a different job for no reason. I, I think she could bring a tribunal. Stephen, creepy yeah. or not creepy? No, I, I think it, it is. And it's one of those odd things, and it was only on a rewatch. I sort of, you, you know that the Colin Firth one is, is creepy. What I was surprised when I rewatched is how little conversation there is between Hugh Grant and Martin McCutcheon. Like what what do they have in common? We don't know. Yeah. We never see them we talk never, about anything yeah. apart from biscuits. And then of course the the weird thing is I think the the writer one would be quite sweet were it not for that actually re- it's, it's it's a non sequiturial scene always because the really strange thing about it is she's she's wearing sort of everyday underwear, and it, the way it kind of lingers over the underwear is just really strange. Because it's like, are it's we really, meant to be really male gazy? Isn't yeah, it? are we meant to be seeing it as Colin Firth? Are we meant to? And it's a shame because actually, you remove that scene, and although they can't understand each other, we can tell from the subtitles and from what Colin Firth is saying, you know, in in English, that they clearly do have an outlook in common. They do try language barrier notwithstanding. They do try and talk about what the book he's writing is about and stuff. He never asks her about her, though, does he? He's never like, so, you're Portuguese, but you live in France. Like, but in how an, come, you know, anything. In a way, that's sort of the really sad thing about uh, Love Actually, is that you have the the, child, the, you know, the two children in love, which, you know, is very nostalgic, it's very sweet. You have the only couple of Richard Curtis's age which make it into the final film. The only couples of Richard Curtis's age which are in, in you know, even its, its full uncut entirety are either dying or adulterous. And then you have this one where basically what the other couples have in common is an, old, an, an older man would like to have sex with his subordinate and guess what? His subordinate agrees. Mm-hmm. Which just does give it that slightly sad feeling. It's a bit like later Martin Amos novels when, yeah, like when suddenly he's even more preoccupied with women's breasts and you just feel quite sad for him. Although, of course, the worst one is still the Kira Knightley, Chiwetel Ejiofor and that other bloke, which I like to think of as being a discreet pilot for a version of Othello, because they would be a brilliant... It would be um, a good casting for Othello, yeah. wouldn't it? Okay, so uh, for the benefit of listeners who haven't heard you talk about this in the office a lot, expound your Iago theory for us. So, Iago theory of love, actually. So you have uh, the Othello character, who obviously is uh, is, is Tuatel Ejiofor, who uh, has this young blonde wife, and then his best friend is all like, oh, I don't like her, I don't talk to her. Oh, she's a bit dubious, boss. Because the thing is, he knows that then, then, then he doesn't, then his best man doesn't like his wife. Which I mean, as someone who's uh, recently uh, got hitched, I find very strange the idea that you'd just be like, "Hey, darling, guess what? I've chosen that friend of mine who doesn't like you as my best man." But yeah, you know, it's exactly that dynamic. Except obviously, at the end, we know that he wants to uh, sleep with Desdemona. Although actually, there are some interpretations of Othello which have Iago wanting to sleep with Desdemona. Yeah, I've definitely seen one like that. And actually, the sort of the reason that Iago goes on to act. Like- he does this because Desdemona rejects him. And it is just such a strange plotline in so many ways, not least because the dynamic would make a lot more sense and it would be much more moving if he was in love with uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor. There's that troubling moment when... And that well, that's the only one which is not age-inappropriate, but it's even more creepy because it's that moment when, after she watches the video edited of the lingering shots on her, and she says, but you never talk to me. I'm sorry, he's not in love with her you have to know something about someone. In fact, you have to know quite a bit about someone to properly be in love with them. 
He just thinks she's fit. Yeah. You think he thinks she's fit and he's angry because his friend has her and he doesn't. Yeah. Which, I mean, is really worrying. There's a worst case scenario of that plot where, like, he tries to kill her. <laughs> Isn't that, you know? But you... Are, you are supposed to think at the beginning when it's the wedding that he's in love with him, aren't you? I think so. Because I think every single person I've spoken to about I definitely thought that. And also that what initially. I hadn't realised until we rewatched it was that Laura Linney's character makes that explicit. Like, So he's sitting at the edge of the dance floor, like, filming them doing their lovely dance. Looking miserable. Looking miserable. And she comes and sits next to him and she just says, are you in love with him? And he's like what and she's like well I, I thought I'd ask the blunt question in case it was the right one and you needed someone to talk to about it yeah. so she makes so we get that assumption on screen so I think it's therefore kind of we're, we're allowed to think that obviously that's then to heighten the tension of when it turns out to be something different yeah oh it's okay he, he's in love with a woman after all but I think Stephen's absolutely right that that would have been a far better storyline because unrequited love is actually something that's not done hugely well in this mm. film and that's a huge part of what mm. love actually is <laughs> so it would have been that i think that would have made it far better and i remember being disappointed that it ended up just some man videoing kira knightley all the time and being horrible to her yeah yeah that that's definitely one of i think the most distasteful mm. parts of the plot the other one that we have touched on already the the adultery plot i want to talk just talk a little bit about the the ending of that because even in the deleted scenes the Mia character the secretary her motives become no clearer there's a deleted scene where she's talking to her friend Iago and she just randomly says I'm thinking of having an affair with my boss and that's that's it like she doesn't say because I find him really attractive or because I know he's unhappy at home and I think he'd be happy with me she doesn't say anything she just says I'm just thinking of doing it there is I think some disagreement about the end of that storyline whether the scene at the airport when um, Emma Thompson brings her kids to meet Alan Rickman, who's coming up, we assume, from a business trip, whether they're still together or whether they're not anymore. She looks sad. She's got kind of new highlights and she has a, like a kind of awkward cheek kiss with Alan Rickman. Are we supposed to assume that she's stayed in the marriage for the children but is unhappy or whether they're in the process of separating? What do you reckon? I always thought that they were in the process of making up and so she was still very hurt but they were st- <laughs> still okay, together. Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't thought um, about. Because the kiss is really awkward and quite cold but there's also a lot of willing there from both sides mm. and I wonder whether or not they're trying to patch up their marriage. Yeah, I also think that they are still together at the end. Not not least because, yeah, she says it's good good to have you back. But also, and this is a bit hand-webby, but I think that that's sort of the only way you can rescue that plot line because if it's about adultery and a marriage breaking up, you really need to have more of a focus on the... I have no idea what the third person in, in a... In a in Philandry is the adulterette you know you, you really need to know why it is she wants to sleep with him and also because something else I only thought of when we rewatched it is that we're never actually sure that they do sleep together like he buys her the mm. fancy necklace and she's clearly making eyes at him and stuff but we never get it confirmed that he does actually you know do that for me at least it makes sense more because you know the first time we're introduced to Emma Thompson's character the first thing she has to do is break off from her phone conversation with her friend to talk to her children she's introduced to someone who's given a lot of things for her children it feels to me that surely the emotional arc is basically someone who gives things up to give their children what they see as the best start in life and obviously there is an open question about whether or not it is a great start in life for one's children to be brought up in a household held together only by a desire to keep it together for them but that is obviously sort of what she thinks I mean when she does the kind of you know, would you stay knowing that things would always forever be a little bit worse? And so I think it makes dramatic sense to me if they are still together at the end. I agree with that because I do think otherwise, why does she have that line? Would you stay knowing 
things would always be a little bit worse. And then quite soon after she says that, you see her in what is clearly a marriage where everything is a little bit worse. Um, I hadn't thought of Anusha's interpretation that maybe she's getting over it and that that's why, as you say, like she doesn't have to kiss him. Hmm. And perhaps perhaps she's sent him away for a bit. Maybe she was like, you need to be out of my life. I need to think about things. And maybe that's where he's been. I don't know. Yeah. I have to say this remains for me the thought, despite its kind of creepy man abusing subordinates trust elements that remains to me the best bit of the film is emma thompson's performance and i guess she's able to give that performance because of alan rickman like because of the kind of masculinity he projects in the film i could pretty much jump the rest of it and keep that personally <laughs> yeah. So we're now going to talk a little bit about the fact that perhaps the best relationships in love actually are not actually romantic ones. I'm with Anoush and Barbara. Barbara, do you have a favourite non-romantic or non-sexual relationship in this? Yeah, I think there's the big hitter, which is Laura Linney's relationship with her brother, who is, I think, mentally ill and is in a home of some kind. So she's kind of called out from her romantic liaisons to go and help him. And I think that the knee-jerk reaction to that is like, oh, tragic her, she can't have a boyfriend because she's got this annoying family member. But actually, kind of at the end of the film, that you see them spending Christmas together and they both look really, really happy. And the guy she tries to kind of go off with seems really horrible and is really unsympathetic when she (laughs) receives these phone calls from her brother. So I think that maybe the conclusion really is that that is the right love for her at that time and that she maybe reconciles herself with that when she realises that this guy is actually not Yeah, he's basically a douchebag, isn't he? Because he like basically goes back to hers to bone her and then she like has to answer the phone to her brother Mm. and she's like, oh, sorry, my brother's a bit ill at the moment so I'm talking Mm. to him a lot on the phone. He calls a lot. And then he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's totally fine. And then when he calls literally one more time, like two minutes later, he's like, don't answer it. Yeah, it's quite sinister. (laughs) But then equally, I mean, so many of the characters in this film don't speak to each other very much, even though they are meant to be in love. But I think this couple, the fact they don't really speak and he especially never speaks, whereas she's shown to be quite kind of bubbly and chatty with her Mm. colleagues. I think you're just meant to realise he's a bit vapid and a bit like he's attractive, but there's nothing much to him at all. He's kind of dorky, handsome. He's got a good chest, but... You just get the feeling there'd be a lot more awkward, silent car rides and lack of sympathy for her particular situation. Yeah, it always frustrated me that that seemed to be the end of any chance that they ever had of getting together. Just the fact that her brother called her twice when he first went back to her. I know, but I think they haven't been in a relationship initially. So he maybe wasn't that keen on her at all because it took two years for him to like even go back to her house and like not try very hard to have sex with her because that's the story of her crush really i don't think that because i think it's clear she's not really in love with him because like how could she be no because they've just sat in the same office i agree that often people are like oh yeah it's it's such a shame she doesn't get a happy ending and you're like wait are you saying that just because she like still hangs out with her mentally ill brother and like Mm -hmm. doesn't have a boyfriend because she's probably fine with (laughs) both those facts (laughs) yeah Uh, anoush what about you do you have a fave 
Well, I quite liked, and I'm using the past tense on purpose, Emma Thompson and Liam Neeson's friendship. That doesn't usually happen in films very well, just like a man and a woman being mates. Yeah. Um, but I, I use the past tense because since then people have speculated about the fact that he might have been in love with her all along and all of this stuff. And so that kind of ruins it for me because I quite like the casual way that they were just friends and used to chat on the phone and listen to each other's problems and be quite affectionate and also take the piss out of each other and I quite like that because mm. it's quite real. I think it's quite fun that they're just these normal middle-aged people who have like as many feelings as the rest of us obviously. One thing I think is kind of a shame is that when Emma Thompson has this kind of horrible upheaval within her marriage which to be fair is towards the end of the kind of plot that we see she doesn't get to call up Liam Neeson and get him to kind of help her because mm. we see a lot of her supporting him and he says you're the only person I can call but then it's sort of a shame you don't get the But she's being quite deliberately self-effacing in those moments as well, isn't yeah. she? Like she's mm-hmm. making like a brave face of it, as it were, because she hasn't even talked to her husband about it yet, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I think maybe the timeline is probably why, but I think that that would have been a nice... Because you're right, the male-female friendship is very rare. And like yeah. it's almost, it is a shame if you think there's a sexual element, because... Otherwise, it's actually quite a radical thing to see yeah. these people being friends. Yeah, because so, they always end up getting together in the end, mm. don't they, whenever there's a female-male friendship. Basically, there was a BuzzFeed article, wasn't there, that was like, mm. oh, the millionth thing that you definitely won't have noticed from Love Actually, definitely never. And it was the fact that when Liam Neeson first calls up Emma Thompson's character, he says, hi, Karen, like, so, so glad I have you to talk to. So we know Emma Thompson's character is Karen. And then later on, when he meets like the Claudia Schiffer character, who is Carol... He, like, accidentally calls her Karen straight away. And people are like, oh, my God, it's because he's secretly in love with his best friend, Karen. And I think, has, mm. have they con- did some people on the show agree that that was intentional or not? I think the, the name slip-up is confirmed by the subtitles. So, because, I mean, he does have an Irish accent. So at right, first right. I was like, well, maybe he's just saying Carl. And you <laughs> can't hear it. Yeah. Um, but I think it is. But I yeah. don't know if the show people have. But they might have just not have a mistake. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated film. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's <laughs> many, many characters. Or maybe he just, like, um, really loves his friend and, like, as a friend and, like, mm. uses her name because he likes yeah. to talk to her. I don't know. But I guess the moments of ambiguity are quite good and interesting as well because, for, so for that, that relationship is slightly unclear. I mean, the Bill Nye relationship with his manager is also quite unclear and there's a chance that that is about kind of gay love. Mm. But there's also a chance that he's just trying to say, you're my best friend, that's who I love that's where my home is kind of thing which again is quite a nice not well it's not sexual in the film at least um, but it's so it's a more non-traditional conclusion to that story I also think it's interesting that both Emma Thompson and Liam Neeson's characters uh, have children and like spend a lot of time devoting themselves to that and I wonder if like parent-child relationships are some of the best things done in love actually yeah I think because um, I when we rewatched the film I was quite shocked that so the storyline with um, Liam Neeson's stepson or son mm-hmm. and um, Joanna, the girl that he loves, um, we see him like running through the airport. There's this whole very dramatic scene and then we don't see him say anything to her. I think we're meant to assume he says that he loves her. It's like not very clear. Um, but the point is that what you do see is him greeting his dad mm-hmm. straight afterwards and that's like what's like so moving and you get this mm-hmm. real like punch in your chest because he like puts his arms out like he's Kate on the Titanic which is like such a visual symbol of the fact that those two that's the real relationship like obviously Absolutely. he has a crush on this girl and that's really cute and whatever but that's not really what that storyline is about it's about them both kind of grieving for the mum and then kind of bonding with each other yeah really, and really using nice. their relationships with other people as a way to like actually improve their own 
And like, yeah. they're the real Kate and Leo yeah, yeah, <laughs> in exactly. that scenario. They are Kate and Leo. That's one of the most moving moments in the film when he calls him dad for the first time. And like yeah. that whole relationship is the build up between him being like, you're my dad, like regardless of biology. Sometimes they can be. Yeah, and really they've good. avoided... Avoided the cliches with that relationship as well. You don't see him. I mean, obviously he goes through his drumming angsty phase, but that's only because he's in love. It's not because he hates his stepdad or anything like that. So it's yeah. quite. And in a weird kind of way, the fact that they're not just talking about the mom the whole time is yeah. what's quite clever about it. Because I think them being really upset about that is what you sort of expect, especially at the beginning. But mm. the kind of twist is that there's this kind of whole other side to the story. But yeah. then equally, you have that awful, awful bit with Aurelia's sister, who is just like, her father is so horrible about her because she's yeah. not the pretty skinny one who's being chased by Colin Firth. Oh yeah, I completely forgot about that. And so then that kind of undermines the sort of love your yeah. children, regardless you... of... <laughs> How and you see Martine McCutcheon, her dad has a nickname for her, yes, which is like yeah. Plumpy, Plumpy. <laughs> I was yeah. going to mention that as well, because that's kind of uncomfortable too. The ones that you sort of spend more time with and aren't played off for comedy are done like really well. So although the entire like Portuguese family stuff is sort of used basically for like cheap laughs yeah. and as a like xenophobia. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they're not they're not the kind of people that love actually looks at, so no. they don't really count as like Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> but um there's whole swathes of stuff as well in the deleted scenes with Emma Thompson and and her one of her children who's like a kind of rebellious young preteen boy and he gets in trouble with his headmistress and she's that there's a whole sort of plot there about her being like i don't actually care if you're well behaved i think you're really funny and i love you and like so there's there's more than just the whole like oh i sacrifice things Mm. for my kids Mm. and like make them lobsters side of her storyline which is really nice so yeah what about like friendships in this how does love actually deal with friendships well badly what do you think barbara yeah so we were saying that before that actually there's pretty much no female friendships in this film so it probably wouldn't I can't confirm this, but it probably wouldn't pass the Bechdel test because there aren't women talking to each other about things that aren't men, which is a shame. But you do get those non-traditional friendships. So you get the Liam Neeson, Emma Thompson friendship. Um, The kind of love triangle storyline, so where Keira Knightley um, marries someone whose best friend turns out to have been in love with her all along, that's kind of worked through in quite an interesting way because the guy isn't really trying to steal her away or anything. He just has all these kind of uncomfortable feelings and her big goal for the storyline is that they can just be friends and i think Mm. by the end they are you see the three of them all together hanging out at the airport greeting someone um so that's quite a nice ending because it's not about him getting his girl or like you know being confirmed in his male ego or anything it's about him kind of getting past it and seeing that being friends with her is much more important yeah he kind of like once he's sort of offloaded all that like angst it's actually a bit like oh yeah that (laughs) That is not a person that I really... But also that he was mean to her. I mean, that's the sad thing at the beginning, Mm. that his love for her actually leads to her feeling very uncomfortable around him, despite the fact that he's the best man at her wedding, which Mm. is really sad. Yeah. Um, So she she is actually quite a good character in that, because she just basically is like, why don't you like me? (laughs) Like, please like me. And her husband seems to be oblivious to this whole thing. Yeah, just like he's just emotionally switched (laughs) off. Yeah, (laughs) and he just stays on the sofa. He's just like, yeah. I've always thought that was a bit odd that he doesn't want. want And he's like, tell Carol, tell him to piss off those bloody Carol singers, children. And then you also get quite a funny friendship between Colin Frissell and his friend, who basically says, "You're not going to get a girl. You're a sad loser (laughs) with like no job." Um, And so, and then is is like rewarded at the end with his own woman, who gets brought to him all the way from America. 
Vegas. So that's yeah. a very heartwarming yeah, story of friendship there. <laughs> There's quite a lot of like weird trafficking that happens at the end. Yeah, like, all these people are moving are, like, all over the world. Brought into the airport by like... <laughs> to tie odd. up all the loose ends of the plot. Very odd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like there could have been a whole load more like female friendships. Like, especially mm. like we were just saying about Emma Thompson not being able to talk to anyone really about what she's going through. If yeah. it's not Liam Neeson, it would have been nice to have like another person that she could speak yeah. to who isn't her children so yeah, i think the also moment when when martine mccutcheon is sexually assaulted by the president of the united <laughs> states of america she doesn't have any she doesn't really seem to no. have any outlet for that which is a bit yeah and the strange. only in fact the only group of female friends you see are the american women who are basically friends because it's sexy for an onlooker who's like oh i can get off with all of them yeah at the so that's time. like the only time you really see a kind of group of but i suppose it extends further than that. i mean the prime minister talks to himself all the time and that is a sign that he too doesn't really have any friends, mm, yeah. um, which is quite sad. That he's shown as being quite lonely, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of house. the characters in this film are quite lonely, even though it's all about how they all know each other in weird ways. Mm. They all they all seem to be looking for like one person that they can like properly communicate with. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. So, to finish, dear listeners, we thought we'd just summarise our best slash worst bits slash plots of love actually caroline shall i start with you go on then what was your favorite bit so i'm gonna sneakily combine best and worst into the same thing because i think it's objectively the best cinematic and acting wise bit of the film but it's also the bit that distresses me the most it's the scene where emma thompson cries alone in her bedroom to Joni mitchell after she's found out that her husband is probably cheating on her i think it's amazing partly because i i think emma thompson's amazing she's no offense but a much higher caliber of actor than quite a lot of the other people in this film <laughs> yeah, definitely. you know she's she's not someone who really does romantic comedies she obviously did this because lots of her friends were in it and you know Richard Curtis probably gave her a lot of money and even within a really ridiculous script and a character that doesn't have a kind of fully realized inner life she still manages to just stop your heart every single time I completely agree with you actually so so good and like the way she cries as well like she doesn't she cries like a real person would cry i.e. like quite messily and like wiping her face with the palms of her hands and stuff she's not like dabbing with a tissue and then like sniffling a bit it's actually quite like visceral perhaps her best crying performance since the end of sense and sensibility i was just about to say like <laughs> another example of this yeah. is also the like weird gulpy noises she makes at the end of sense and sensibility which are noises which are that... referenced in a richard curtis program vicar of dibley so they are so they are how about you i think my favorite bits for comedy are a are you the lobster the first lobster <laughs> I love that I like literally I'm living my life in hope that I one day will too be the first lobster and also I love the octopus moment in the car where oh, they're where driving the along over and he's grunt. like yeah. you know I just think maybe one day I could actually feel and then the kid in the octopus suit is just like we're here <laughs> <laughs> we're here and I love those bits 
I think my favourite characters in it would be a toss-up between Emma Thompson as the pure angel mum and Gavin and Stacey, Stacey and Tim from The Office is boning. <laughs> Anoush, what's your favourite bit in this film? My favourite bit in this film is what I think is the most realistic part of this film is the sea creature nativity that the children have to take part in at their school because I, I really can imagine a school deciding that that would be a good idea for Christmas and for all these hassled parents to have to make these giant paper mache octopus and lobster costumes at last minute. I think it's actually a very good nativity as well. <laughs> and what's your least favourite bit of this film? What could you do without? I could really do without um, Colin going to America and sort of wooing all of these two-dimensional <laughs> female characters um, and it's supposedly being hilarious. I don't think that bit was very funny. But he's got a big knob. Oh, well, that changes everything. <laughs> Lucky America. <laughs> Stephen, what about you? I think my favourite couple in love, actually, is the little boy, Thomas Sangster, Liam Neeson's son, and Joanna, the girl at school, because I just think it's a very sweet but actually quite true-to-life reflection of people's first crushes and the kind of earnestness and innocence that children who aren't really small children anymore but aren't yet proper teenagers sort of approach to affairs of the heart. And I think the worst couple in love actually sort of does have to be the the creepy guy, the, the Kira Knightley one, uh, Iago. I mean, it's it's really sad because that, that plot line, if... if if he had been lusting after his friend who he's talked to and knows something about, it would be a sad, heartbreaking story. As it is, it is just the story of a guy who makes a video that he's probably going to take home to masturbate to, and we're meant to feel sympathetic towards him. <laughs> Barbara, what about you? Favourite couple in love, actually? Yes, so I embarrassingly can't remember their names, so I'll just call them Stacey of Gavin and Stacey and The Hobbit, um, <laughs> who spend their time uh, acting as, we think, lighting models for adult film. Um, the reason I like it is because they're the only couple you see who spend any amount of time together before popping the question of like marry me or you know become my girlfriend or whatever because they kind of they work together they chat they're kind of quite respectful and shy around each other and then kind of right at the end of the film just as Colin Firth is proposing to his um, <laughs> Portuguese love the guy just asks her do you want to go for a drink and then she says yes and he's really nervous and happy despite the fact he's already kind of like rubbed her breasts and been naked with her for <laughs> hours and hours so I think that I just think that's quite a normal counter to a lot of the rest of the film What about you, India? What's your favourite part of Love Actually? All of Bill Nye, his dancing, his constantly bent knees, his put down of Ant or Deck, um, <laughs> his relationship with his manager, which is perhaps the longest running in the film. And most of all, he's apparently always felt bad for insulting the boy band Blue, and uh, it turned out they probably needed all the love they could get. <laughs> John, we've asked everyone else. What about you? What's your best bit of Love Actually? I honestly don't think there is one. I think it's utterly meritless from start to finish. I think it's quite possibly the worst film I've ever seen. A terrible confession is I only seen it once 12 years ago in the cinema and I hated it so much that hate has sustained me through the dozen years since <laughs> such that I still remember enough details that make me angry that I've been able to do this podcast. It's awful. It's everything I hate about this country and the smug upper middle class tosspots like me who run it. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoy what we do, you might want to consider following us on Twitter at SRSLYpod. We post links to things we've mentioned in the show, gifts we like, and all manner of other things you'll probably enjoy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.